Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And my name is Julie Douglas. And this is part two of our SETI episode, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. This Again, this is part two. I highly recommend you listen to part one first. Sometimes when we do a part one and a part two, you can kind of take them in any order you want, but this is not the case here. Uh, there's a definite uh, uh, narrative structure in place, and, uh, and it just won't make sense if you don't listen to part one first. That's right. We created the setup so that when we get to this part, uh, that you guys will have a little bit more of an understanding of the context of exoplanets and aliens. So I hope you guys enjoy part two. Yeah, we're talking about SETI. We're talking about the possibility of uh intelligent alien life elsewhere in the cosmos, and we're talking uh, about radio waves. Uh, I, want, I thought it's important to point out that there's a reason why, why radio waves are mm-hmm. so important in all of this. Uh, in uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson's book, uh, Space Chronicles, he points out that radio waves uh, are a communication band of choice for potential alien civilizations due to the radio wave's ability to traverse the, the galaxy unimpended by interstellar gas and dust clouds. So, That's right. They travel really well. Travel really well. So it's it's something we can look for that we know travels vast distances. And again, and, and that's the one of the things that we, we as we mentioned when we we're talking about Fermi paradox and the Drake equation, is that when we're talking about finding life elsewhere in the universe, we're talking vast stretches of time and space. Mm-hmm. I mean, to to the level that it's really difficult for us to to think about it. Uh, you know, like it's it's like thinking about thinking about it in terms of like finding your soulmate. It's like that that person is out there in the world. And they're alive, and they didn't exist, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, five thousand years ago, and it's, it's not a situation where they won't exist for another five. But imagine that you're super picky, and so you kind of have to apply that Drake equation to your soulmate, yeah. right? So, like, they they have to be like exactly like five ten and three and quarter inches, and yeah. they have to be uh, I don't know how many more like constraints can you put on that, right? Yeah. You could put like a hundred million constraints on it, and that is what it's like searching for that signal. So SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, there's the SETI agency, and this was set up in the 60s in earnest mm-hmm. by a dedicated astronomers who were trying to figure this out. Could they really pick up a signal? Now, um, the search uses large radio telescopes, and with these telescope scientists involved in SETI, hope to detect radio signals that are leaking, this is what we're thinking, leaking from other intelligent civilizations or that other civilizations have specifically aimed that signal at us. Yeah, so either we'll listen in on on an alien phone call, essentially, mm-hmm. or we will receive that alien phone call that we both hope and dread for. Now, according to Marshall Brain, he is a, the founder of How Stuff Works. Uh, he's got a nice blog post on this. Uh, he says, the problem with SETI is that it requires massive computational resources. Mm-hmm. Just think of all that data that, that you have to comb through. SETI is listening to a huge number of frequencies. Then the computer has to look at each frequency separately and try to decide if it's carrying an intelligent signal as opposed to noise. To give you an idea of the scope of the problem, the antenna used by SETI at home records 35 gigabytes of data every day. It takes millions of hours of computation time just to process one day's worth of data. Now, he's talking about a program that's called SETI at Home that sort of uh, runs 
the data for you in the background. That yeah, you this can is the this? Uh, yeah the distributed uh, computing program where you would install this on your home computer. Mm-hmm. You get up to go use the restroom or you go to have lunch or whatever. Screensaver kicks in, and your computer instead of uh, working on your own uh, you know efforts in your word processing or what have you, it then contributes that computing power to SETI's problem of analyzing all of this data. That's right. It grinds away on that data, which is really cool. So uh, the other problem, uh, I guess you could say the problem of having so much data is, uh, you know, trying to tune into the most probable frequencies. Mm-hmm. So one way to go about this is to determine the best range. And the 1 to 10 gigahertz range is, is the best range to listen and is the quietest. Uh, SETI also uses large multi-channel bandwidth signal processors that can scan millions or billions of frequencies uh, simultaneously. And that's really what's, what they're more leaning toward these days. Yeah, and then you, there are so many factors you have to take into account too. You have to you have to worry about uh, about waves that are actually uh, emitted by us that are just bouncing back mm-hmm. uh, from from something else, say a you know a piece of space garbage even. Um, pulsars too. Pulsars, because that, that was a big one. Yeah, the pulsars are sending out this signal, this pulse. Mm-hmm. And when we first uh, discovered them, we didn't know what they were. They're like, oh my goodness, this is it. This mm-hmm. this could be it. And then we, we looked a little deeper when we realized, oh, well, actually, there are these things, and we'll call them pulsars because they're pulsing yes, stars. Star, exactly, stars emitting a pulse. Um, and I also wanted to mention, too, that uh, most of SETI research has been done by renting time on existing radio telescopes. So it's mm-hmm. not even something that's an, an endeavor that we can do constantly, right? You have to rent the time mm-hmm. because it's super expensive to, to even get this sort of technology uh, for your own devices, right? Yeah, and it's a nonprofit, and they, they depend on the funding from a variety of different sources. Uh, NASA uh, kicks in, and as well as uh, you know, even just uh, you know, individuals and various uh, groups out there contribute to the SETI effort because it's something that's it's uh, you know a lot of people believe in it, and for good reason because it is if you if you consider the, even the possibility that there's life out there in the universe, then it, it's it, it's essential that we find out what it is and what it might consist of. Yep, and the three main radio telescopes are the Parkes Radio Telescope in Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the telescope in Green Bank, West Virginia, and the Arecibo Radio Telescope in Puerto Rico. And I believe that's the one that was in the movie Contact. Yes, at least in the, the intro stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, of course, SETI continues to uh, evolve with the times. Uh, laser technology has made it possible to search uh, the optical portion of the electromagnetic spectrum for pulses of laser light that are just a few nanoseconds long in duration. So short, you have to really fine-tune it to uh, to actually uh, you know record them and analyze them. But uh, during that nanosecond, uh, they can actually briefly shine brighter than the light of nearby stars. So it's just another area that he's looking for the possible clues and trying to uh, intercept that uh, phone call. Yeah, and just to give everybody an idea of really how how huge this is, this this um, this idea of trying to pick up this particular signal, uh, there are a couple of different ways to go about it. One is called the wide field search. So you have this expansive sky beyond, right? What mm-hmm. do you do? I mean, that's a ton of data that's coming at you at any little point that you decide to, to concentrate on. So with the wide field search in this method, you survey large chunks of the sky for, uh, one at a time for signals. 
and it allows the entire sky to be searched at a low resolution for a short period of time. The problem is the low resolution, right? Right. But if you get some data back that says, hey, this seems kind of like a hot area, then you can go back later with high resolution. That's the idea, at least. And then you have targeted searches. In this method, you make intensive investigations of a limited number of sun-like stars. So again, that's that sort of Goldilocks area that you would be looking for. And the targeted search allows for more detailed investigations of small areas that we think might be probable locations of ET. Now, what what happens if you think you've heard a signal? Well, then you have to analyze that signal. You don't just run to the press and say, "We got it, we got it, aliens They're are here. coming." Yeah, that we just—they said they just totally Morse coded us. Um, from the article, how study works on on howstuffworks.com. If a signal detected, there are a series of steps that follow to confirm that signal is extraterrestrial. First, the radio telescope is moved off the target. Uh, the signal should go away, right? And then it should return when the telescope is pointed back. So they kind of say, let's just make sure that this is the real deal. Right. Move this off axis and then take it back. Uh, known Earth or near-Earth sur- uh, sources such as satellites must be ruled out as yeah, originators. Yeah, because you don't want stuff that's originating from the, the, that object or bouncing back, uh, you know, the from, you know, Earth signal bouncing back off that object. Similarly, quasars, uh, pulsars have to be ruled out as mm-hmm. well. And then the signal has to be confirmed by another radio telescope, preferably one on a different continent, to say, are you guys hearing the same thing that we are hearing? Um, all right, so, so far, we don't, we, we haven't really had that contact. But in 1977, there's something called the WOW signal that was detected. And this got people really excited because... It is still an anomaly. It's mm-hmm. uh, certainly the 72-second signal is something that that seems to be something that was picked up by the, the Big Ear uh, radio telescope in Ohio. Yep, just outside of Delaware. Um, and uh, the, the main astronomer in, in all of this, uh, American astronomer Jerry R. Uh, Eman, mm-hmm. uh, Ph.D. And, uh, and he's even kind of gone back and forth on it. Um, I was reading some of his writings about it, and like for a while he was he was just he was in the, of the mindset. Uh, no, there's got to be a you know a terrestrial explanation for this and mm-hmm. what have you. But on the 30th anniversary of the the Wow signal, uh, he had this uh, this really cool bit to say. I'm just going to to read the quote here. He says, "Thus, since all of the possibilities of a terrestrial origin have been either ruled out or seem improbable, and since the possibility of an extraterrestrial origin has not been able to be ruled out, I must conclude that an ETI." extraterrestrial intelligence might, and the might is bolded and italicized, mm-hmm. um, might have sent the, the signal that we received as the wow source. The fact that we saw the signal in only one beam could be due to an ETI sending a beacon signal in our direction and then sending it in another direction that we couldn't detect. Of course, being a scientist, I await the reception of additional signals like the WOW source that are able to be received and analyzed by many uh, observatories. Thus, I must state that the origin of the WOW signal is still an open question for me. There is simply too little data to draw many conclusions. In other words, as I stated above, I choose not to, quote, draw vast conclusions from the half-vast data, unquote. Yeah, there's this uh, great quote, too, that he says it was sort of like a tug on the cosmic fishing line. Yeah. So it doesn't prove that you have a fish on the line, but it does say that you should keep your line in the water because there might be something there. And what is so mysterious about the signal is that it was being emitted from an area that was not a Goldilocks zone. It was sort of the void. It was sort of like there's nothing there. Uh, yeah. So and- they couldn't figure out, like, what what was the – what was originating, what was – Making that, and and a couple of really interesting theories came out of that. 
which I think helped to sort of color our ideas of why we haven't picked up a significant signal since. Mm-hmm. And that's this idea that uh, that it was a lighthouse signal. So rather than it just being like, hey, we're just going to send this universe, uh, the signal out into the universe constantly, it was sort of like we have limited energy and resources and maybe even technology, mm-hmm. and it's going to be more of a lighthouse signal that just kind of goes around, and, yeah. and we'll see if we pick anything And that up. was one of the ideas yeah, that Eamon mentioned, the idea that it's blasted the signal at Earth, and then it turned, blasted mm-hmm. in another direction. So we didn't get a, re- a repeat signal because it's... You know, it's going in a, a circle or what have you. It's uh, it's it's trying to send out the signal to anybody who might be out there and letting them know, hey, what's up? Or, or if if it is indeed in keeping with the true lighthouse saying, stay away because we have rocks or hideous monster gods here and you shouldn't, <laughs> you shouldn't come anywhere near us. Well, there is that zoo theory, right? That that uh, that we have been picked up on, and there's an intelligent uh, extraterrestrials out there. They're saying, hey, just let them do their thing. They and are hilarious. Evolve. We'll just watch them from a distance. <laughs> Uh, like a colony of ants and see what they're up to. Um, and then there's also the idea that maybe that technology died or the technology from that uh, society died out, or maybe it's just that we didn't overlap. So in other words, by the time that we started listening, uh, we missed any sort of signals that might have been sent out. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing, that possibility as well as just the lighthouse possibility, it reminds me of any of these movies where someone is stranded on a desert isle. And that that plane flies over, mm-hmm. and generally they're like asleep or doing something else or talking to a volleyball when it happens. <laughs> Planes flying over, and so they frantically try and get that plane's attention, but it's too late. It's already passed over, and maybe there just wasn't a very good way to get its attention to begin with. Mm-hmm. So there's this kind of like haunting feeling. What if they did? What if that was a, an attempt at communication from an, an, a distant civilization? And in one one way or another, we were too late. We were just we or we didn't have the technology to respond, or or our time the time light line or or the life cycle of our civilizations didn't overlap or didn't mm-hmm. overlap enough for that to be possible. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like uh, you know, it's like star torn lovers out there in the cosmos. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. But uh, quite, that's what makes people so obsessive about it because they say again, we've got the ingredients for this primordial soup. There's got to be a possibility here. Um, let's just keep listening. And that is what SETI is trying to do. And SETI is not just listening, they're preparing to. And we had mentioned this in a previous podcast, I guess about a couple of years ago, in a, I think it was called Alien Etiquette 101. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was one of the early ones that we did together. Uh, they, uh, the SETI Institute had a workshop in Paris in 2002 inviting people from, from all different disciplines to discuss the ways in which we might communicate with aliens and the best modes to do it. And then, I, I really love this one, uh, 2008 NASA sponsored a course at the University of Wyoming called Interstellar Message Composition, and uh, students were asked to ponder how aliens might communicate and uh, how you would translate between languages and so on and so forth. One of the students wrote a poem about menstruation with syllables arranged in the Fibonacci sequence in her quest, I think, to try to let uh, extraterrestrials know about some of the human biology. Yeah, I mean, because you never know what the talking points are going to be. You want to be like, hey, do you guys have menstruation? And they're like, yeah, yeah, we do, actually. And then you have something to talk about. And they go, oh, how quaint. Yeah. It's like a first date between species, um, <laughs> civilizations. Um, I mean, you could make the, the argument that you need to appoint somebody. Like, uh, you know, what if Dennis Rodman was the uh, was the, the go-to man? You know, he's doing so well. Dennis in, Rodman? Well, yeah. I mean, he's he's been doing so well in terms of just being an international emissary, you know, going out to North Korea on... Unofficial behalf okay. of the United States. Mm-hmm. Uh, so maybe we send him to other worlds to talk to the hideous monster gods. I don't know. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more SETI.
Well, a lot of this has been us looking out at the cosmos, but what about trying to take the perspective of an extraterrestrial life form looking at us? What would Earth, the exoplanet, look like? Yeah, because we, we're we're talking about okay, other signals, signals that we uh, we receive that we may either be listening in or being told directly. So it's kind of like. This, in this situation, it makes me think of when you're at a, a restaurant or something or, or any public place and you're having a conversation with somebody mm-hmm. or maybe you're on the phone and then you realize too late that you're in earshot of someone else and you're like, oh my goodness, did they listen to that whole conversation up mm-hmm. until this point? And then only then can you maybe have a directed comment to them and, and greet them or whatever. So the idea here is that bef- long before we even thought about sending a signal, a radio signal out, into the, the, the great black beyond. We were inadvertently leaking mm-hmm. all these radio signals. And, it's, you know, it wasn't the worst stuff that we've uh, necessarily that we've uh, we've contributed, but not all of it is exactly uh, something that we would put on the galactic resume otherwise. <laughs> You're right. Um, it's sort of like cleaning up our Facebook page if we could, right? Yeah, it's if, like, oh my goodness. As an 18-year-old, my... and then you see yourself as a 30-year-old. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, like you said, we've been kind of leaking out this uh, detritus of of. Uh, humanity since the 1930s in the form of AM and FM radio broadcasts, TV broadcasts, and then satellite and radar broadcasts. Um, and then there's also just the, the other sort of ambient noise, like every time you open your garage door. Yeah. These are all signals that are being sent out there. So um, we have lots of groaning noises. We have lots of, uh, I mean, ultimately a lot of footage of us, of us as a biological specimen that I think is going to be good regardless. But then you have us dressed up in monster costumes. You have uh, various levels of fiction and fantasy. You have actual depictions of humanity at its at its worst, of us uh, waging war on each other, um, waging genocide. Right. I mean, just some really horrible images for another culture to look at and go, oh, I don't know if we need these guys in our in our friend group. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is, uh, say, say that you pick up on the, our frequency, and then it's sort of like this ocean of sound coming at us, and, yeah. and the first thing that you hear is from the 1930s, and then you move on to the 1950s, and it's like bits and pieces from The Honeymooners. That's the name of the show, right? Yeah, yeah, The Honeymooners. I um, love Lucy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so... I'm trying to make sense of all this. Yeah, yeah, I found that really interesting, that the edge of this radio bubble that is uh, that is emitted by uh, our planet and by uh, our culture uh, is uh, about 70 light years away, you know, just spreading out like, like ripples right. in a pond. And... It, and uh, near that edge, that's where you find stuff like uh, I Love Lucy and the Honeymooners. And I, I looked it up. I was like, oh, I wonder if – I never really watched those shows. I wonder if uh, interplanetary relations were ever covered. And, and of course, they, they were to a certain extent. There is an episode of the Honeymooners called The Man from Space in which uh, Jackie Gleason dressed up in uh, like a really bad uh, like robot alien costume. Mm-hmm. And then Ralph uh, – comes into the door and is scared, like he's terrified. He's like, ah, oh. and then he, he voices some concern over the possibility of, of alien invasion. So even right there in the Honeymooners, they might click off and say, whoa, there's some sort of, uh, you know, underlying fear that we might invade them. Maybe we should we should lay low. And then there is an I Love Lucy episode called Lucy is Envious, 
that features two different sets of uh, of bad Martian costumes, like yeah. Lucy and her friend are on the roof wearing Martian costumes, trying to scare people off the roof for some reason. And then I think someone's paying them to do it. Yeah, I don't know. And then then there, I think their husbands come in and scare them wearing the Martian costumes. It's uh, and so this is the thing that's out there on that bubble, right? Yeah, and it's concerning what we think are is intelligent ex- uh, extraterrestrial life, which is very interesting. I did find it really fascinating that Jackie Gleason was apparently a big UFO enthusiast. So I wonder what he would make of that. To, to you know that is into the idea of extraterrestrial life as he was, um, you know that he's kind of an emissary of it. It's hard to say, right? Because then there's the whole thing about how we project uh, all sorts of things onto other beings, and we have these expectations, and really we don't even really know what we're dealing with. Because, as we had pointed out in one of the slime episodes, intelligence can be many different things in many different forms. Mm-hmm. So it may not be what we expect. I wanted to point out too that uh, if if uh, some sort of extraterrestrial life were looking at us, um, they might pick up that we are uh, just chemically all over the place. Mm-hmm. So they might look at Earth, and they might look at the biomarkers that indicate our planet is rife with flora and fauna. And they would do this through uh, spectroscopy, the analysis of light through a spectrometer which allows us to look at the chemical fingerprint of every element and chemical and see how much of it is absorbed, emitted, and scattered throughout a particular atmosphere. So if intelligent aliens were to set their spectrometer sights on us, what would they see? They'd see an unusual amount of methane, as we noted, uh, thanks in part to the belching cows and such. Uh, They would see sodium from sodium vapor streetlights switching on. They would just see uh, all sorts of things that they wouldn't necessarily expect. Yeah, you see smog and all sorts of industrial pollution as well. Right, Yeah, they would see, exactly, they would see some some of the, uh, what we call the Anthropocene era markers, that's uh, man-made chemicals, and they would know automatically, like, there's this this is a very loud planet with a lot of different things going on, um, and it would be uh, pretty obvious that something was afoot. Yeah, in his book, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson also mentioned some of the you know the possible reasons that we haven't been discovered. Like, uh, the, I mean, the idea that we're not necessarily, it's easy to get into your mind the idea of like a super intelligent species mm-hmm. out there and they're just all knowing and, and they just either they, you know, they found us and they just don't want to do anything about it or they're so Or you assume point. that they know what we know. Yeah. Right. You know, but, it, you know, the, it's a big universe. It is a big universe. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of time and a lot of distance involved here and it's easy to, I mean, it's like finding uh, a needle in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's, there are possibilities that the, the Earth is a little cl- close to the sun, that even if they uh, were receiving this data, it would be confusing, and they mm-hmm. wouldn't really n- know exactly what they were looking at. And, you know, you have the wrong um, extraterrestrial uh, analyzing the data that day that maybe, you know, maybe he wants to get home to his uh, wife. <laughs> so, may, you know, it well, doesn't give it the due diligence that it's required. Does this point to the limits of knowledge, too? Because, as, as had noted, that intelligence and intelligent life can be something beyond what we know or we define as intelligent life. Mm-hmm. And if there is an extraterrestrial um, civilization out there that is intelligent, I'm putting that in air quotes, maybe they're a completely different form that's different from ours, that we they wouldn't be able to recognize the markers of what our intelligence civilization is. Yeah. It, you know, a lot of our, our fears of alien invasion and all of this, a lot of that is because we're reflecting our, our understanding of ourself uh, out there into the void. Uh, and, it, you know, like I was saying earlier, a lot of it comes down to there's sort of a self-centeredness even in our attempt to understand what's going on beyond us. Mm-hmm. We want to know how we fit in, how we relate, how we stack up. And 
and so as we're you know we 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 imagine a being we imagine a civilization out there that m- would take at least some of the same interests that we have so you look at, at at humans and what have we done we want to plant our flag on things we want to put our name on <laughs> things we want to uh colonize other worlds in the long term because that's the that is what would allow the long term survival of the the species itself we want to keep what we are and and we ultimately we're terrified of change we want to uh we want to, in many cases, we want to ravage other places for their resources. We want to continue to grow and to and to fuel ourselves. So we we look to the possibility of other civilizations, and we kind of expect shades of this as well. But you know, but uh, what if the uh, the extraterrestrial life is more of a you know a, a passive uh, species, a more passive culture? What if they aren't interested in interfering or reaching out to us? What if they just want to check us off on the list, like oh, there's life here? We'll let them just write it down, tell us what it is, and we'll just put it to the books. Maybe that's all they want. Indeed. Maybe it is. And, you know, in the meantime, we'll continue to be listening, right? Yeah. Or rather, SETI will. And uh, there's not a huge future right now for SETI. There there was a dedicated um, telescope array that was planned called the Allen Telescope Array. But mm-hmm. budget cuts have, have sort of put that into hibernation. But in the meantime, SETI continues to eavesdrop on the universe uh, through rented radio telescopes. As of now, they still have an artist in residence, uh, Charles Lindsay, yeah. creating these cool uh, structure uh, like installation pieces with uh, with the sound component and all, and it's really cool stuff. But that was like a 2011 through 2013 uh, gig, so mm-hmm. I don't do not know if they're going to have a second artist in residence. It would be awesome if they did, because uh, the, the whole point of that was to try to change our perspective of what intelligent life may be, right? Yeah. In, in through different forms and shapes and i think he captured some really interesting imagery in fact we'll definitely put that up on facebook yeah yeah and you know and and seti again it's it's something that even casual observers to space exploration you know people with a casual interest uh in science fiction or what have you it's it's a very relatable uh and and noble goal you know Mm -hmm. it's like it's i think it's a great entry point for people to to learn more about science and get excited about science and space exploration indeed all right, so there you have it. A um, little bit about the history of SETI, some of the big points uh, in their history, what they're doing, and uh, and what uh, the future may hold for them. And uh, we could sit around and ponder and uh, and hypothesize and imagine what alien life might consist of uh, just all day. Uh, but you have to keep that confined to certain hours of the day to so get right. stuff done. So um, we would love to hear from uh, you guys if you have anything to add on this. What do you think about the possibility of life elsewhere in the universe? Do you think it exists? Do you know it exists? Uh, we love those stories as well. Uh, so let us know. You can find us on Facebook, and you can find us on Twitter, uh, and you can find us on Tumblr. On Facebook and Tumblr, we are Stuff to Blow Your Mind, and on Twitter, we go by the handle Blow the Mind. And you can always drop us some binary code at discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 